millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing Diane Abbott's suspension, then you ask us whether we have to accept being poorer. Please forgive us because last night we were out at the Publisher Podcast Awards and we actually won Best Political Podcast for the third year in the row. Well done, so, Anish. Yeah, no, well, well done, well done, everyone. <laughs> and we were out celebrating a bit, so bear with us. For the first half of this episode, we're delighted to be joined by our contributing writer, Tomowa Owolade, because it was in response to a column you wrote for The Observer, wasn't it, that Diane Abbott, the former Shadow Home Secretary, wrote into the paper with an argument that saw her suspended as a Labour MP. In your original piece, you were responding to a survey that indicated the two groups most likely to say they've experienced racist abuse are gypsy traveller and Roma communities and Jewish people. Can you tell us what your argument was in that original piece for listeners who might not have read it? Yes. So my argument for that original piece is that when we think about racism, we often, for very good reasons, think about black and brown people. But what I was arguing in that piece is that any genuinely progressive account of racism needs to also account for racism against ethnic minority groups that are often perceived as white. I mention the fact that anti-Semitism isn't just a form of religious prejudice, it's also a form of racism itself. And racism against traveller communities is also something that should be taken into consideration especially because when it comes to educational outcomes, for example, the ethnic group, one of the ethnic groups that are struggling the most are traveller, tra- people from traveller communities. So yeah, that was the argument I was making, that we should have a more comprehensive account of racism. Yeah, and a lot of your writing, you've argued this in the past, a lot of your writing is about how we shouldn't have this, I think the headline in the piece was the black and white approach, but we should split up ethnicities outside of the sort of BAME category and note that different groups have different experience. Yes, definitely, definitely. Because if we genuinely care about trying to combat the inequalities in our society, we need to have a more grounded 
and a more granular approach to this rather than making generalizations mm. because it's only through a more focused analytical framework that we can genuinely fight the inequalities in society. We can precisely target the inequalities, whether that be, whether may, that could be in terms of education, employment, even day-to-day -day prejudice on the streets. The only way we can do that in a more useful way is by having that nuanced and sophisticated approach. Yes, and in response to this, Diane Abbott wrote into the paper, which published her letter, saying mm. that while those white minorities that mm. we've just been talking about mm. in the survey and your report covers have experienced prejudice mm. like redheads have, was mm. one of her comparisons, mm. they don't experience racism like black people do. Mm. And she was suggesting in a way that this was a sort of lesser kind of mm. discrimination. Mm. When you read her letter, how did you feel? Because you did write a response piece to it yes. in the New Statesman yes. as well. Yes. What did you make of her point of view and we should say she has actually retracted it and apologized yes, yes she has i was both surprised and unsurprised so the reason why i was surprised was because this wasn't a throwaway tweet or a mm. facebook comment this was a public letter sent to a national newspaper so it was intended to be something that was published and made very public and also it, it takes a, a lot of thought to actually craft a letter and send to a newspaper. The excuse that she made was that it was a first draft. But when you send something to a national newspaper, there's usually a back and forth. So I think there was a report recently that said that she forgot to actually post her address in the first time she sent it. The Observer sent it back and asked Diane Abbott to actually write her address in it. So I was surprised that she would say something so clearly offensive in an open letter. But I was unsurprised because this is the logical conclusion of a sort of new conception of racism, a kind of racism that views it as something which requires power, so prejudice and power. Yeah. And by that, they mean that certain ethnic white, ethnic minority groups may experience prejudice, but they, they still possess power in society and black and brown ethnic minority groups don't possess power. Therefore, those latter groups are the victims of racism rather than the white ethnic minority groups. I think this is faulty for two reasons. In the case of traveler communities, for example, it doesn't make sense because, as I said earlier, tra traveler communities tend to have some of the worst educational outcomes in the country. And the other reason, which I think is more sinister and dangerous, is that one of the key tropes of anti-Semitism is that Jewish people exercise power and control in society. And that kind of definition of racism by saying, because the implication of that is that Jewish people have power, therefore they can't be victims of racism, which very unfortunately segues into an anti-Semitic trope, which is that Jewish people have power and therefore we can't trust them or there is something suspicious about Jewish people. That's why the that's why that definition and Diane Abbott's letter is both factually wrong and also potentially very dangerous as well. Yeah, and that's why that's why Keir Starmer reacted mm. the way mm. that he did, isn't mm. it, Freddie? Mm. Because the Labour Party has been so plagued, particularly on the left, with this 
as Tom will very articulately just put it there, this segue into anti-Semitism mm. or these these kind of tropes mm. that can mm. be very dangerous. Mm. Is that the reason why there was such a swift decision to suspend her and now she's sitting as an independent? Editor? Yeah, since Keir Starmer came in as leader, he's been very forthright in trying to disassociate himself with the Jeremy Corbyn leadership and the claims of anti-Semitism that were associated with it. He's been consistent in that, partly politically and partly, he says, because he now believes that they need to stamp out in the party and that's why he saw such a a swift response. I think Diane Abbott has had the whip removed. It's currently unclear whether she's going to be able to stand as a Labour candidate. So it was very much a predictable response from Keir Starmer. Yes, yeah. And actually, the party was only taken out of special measures by the Equality Watchdog in February. So it's a bit of a headache when these kind of stories raise mm. raise their heads, even if it gives him the opportunity mm, yeah. to, mm. in inverted commas, mm. purge the left. It's still a nightmare for them to have mm. these kind of stories in the headlines. Still, we've had a comment from John McDonnell in an interview that George Eaton, our colleague, did in this week's magazine. They were speaking before Diane Abbott's suspension, but he is also saying, oh, you're more likely to be suspended from the Labour Party if you're a Jew than a Gentile and bringing back this anti-Semitism row all over again. Mm. And also, let's not forget another MP who was suspended was Rupert Huck, mm, not from yeah. that tradition mm, of the left, mm, but mm. said something that was also racist at party conference last year. I think we'll remember that. Superficially black, right? Yes, yeah. 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 Said that yeah, Kwasi Kwarteng was superficially black back when he was Chancellor, I think. Yeah, this is one of the things, isn't it? We've had all of these scandals for such a long time mm. now, and it's still happening. Tommy, it'd be great to get your view on that. Mm. Diane Abbott has been a lifelong campaigner against racism. Mm. She's been in these debates, she's been in these circles, she's been a campaigner on these issues, and she's lived through and was a key part of the Corbyn years, mm. going through all these mm. scandals with mm. anti-Semitism. Why do you think then, even after all yeah. of this, mm. she still wrote that letter? And as you say, she took yes. the time over it, yes. she considered it, she sent yes. it, she sent it twice. Yes. Why in earth would she still write that letter? Yeah, I think it's very strange. I think it's extremely strange. And I think what makes it all the more stranger is the fact that she so quickly retracted the letter as yeah. well. So she actually retracted the letter before she was suspended by the Labour Party. And the apology that she gave, I found to be very unconvincing because she didn't actually explain why she wrote the letter in the first place. Yeah. And she didn't explain why she changed her mind afterwards. So it was a very, it felt like a very robotic and insincere apology for that letter. And I think another striking thing about the fallout from that is that many on the Labour left were so quick to condemn Diane Abbott. So John Lansman, for example, yeah. the founder and former chair of the pro-Corbyn campaign group Momentum, on that day described Diane Abbott's initial letter to the Observer as disgraceful and said the Labour Party was right to suspend her. So it's striking that um, there was near universal criticism of yeah. Diane Abbott for that, which I think, again, is progress from the from the more polarised Corbyn years. Uh, no, yeah. it's really interesting. And there have been some figures on the right of the mm. party who mm. have sounded <laughs> a bit more defensive or, si or sympathetic <laughs> towards her as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, John McTurnan. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, she John McTurnan, Tony Blair's former mm. political secretary, mm. wrote a piece mm. in The Spectator basically yes. saying that we need to be slightly mm. more forgiving mm. in these situations mm. and she now has apologised. Mm. Whereas, yeah, you're right, Tom, lots of people on the left mm. were instantly critical of it. I mm. think the sort of mainstream message has been, okay, now she's apologised, mm. can we move on? 
mm. uh, rather than in any way offering some defence of her views. And what's been the reaction to Keir Starmer's decision to suspend her, Freddie? What's the general mood about that? I think we need to see where it goes. I mean, we've got the election, the next election coming. So one of the key debates and the key issues will be whether she stands or not. So that's up in the air a little bit at the moment. But I think because there was such universal condemnation of her views, I don't think the suspension will be that surprising. I don't think it will cause that much discontent compared to some of the other issues and compared to the Corbyn issues that we've seen recently and others. This was much more clear cut. Yeah. And Tommy, I mean, Diane Abbott is a sort of iconic figure Mm. in UK politics. Mm. She was Mm. the first black woman to be elected. And she's the longest serving black MP in the mm. Commons. Do you, oh, this may be an unfair question. You don't have to say your, <laughs> yes or no. But do you think she should be allowed to run for Labour in the next election? Or Personally, if she did offer a genuine apology and did explain why she said what she said, I would, from a personal perspective, be very open to readmitting her back into the party and allowing her to run again. But... For Keir Starmer, I think that would be a very difficult thing to do, Mm. both morally and politically, because Starmer has outlined a zero-tolerance approach to anti-Semitism, which I think makes it very difficult to readmit Abba, because, as we've been saying, that that letter was so plain and so clear-cut. There's very little room for ambiguity. So I I think, yeah, personally, I would be open if she apologised, but I think if I was in Keir Starmer's shoes, then likely not for both moral and also political reasons because Kestama very rightly wants to completely expunge any of the toxic legacies from the Corbyn years. Thanks so much for coming on. I think this is your New Statesman podcast debut. So yes, it is. We're delighted to have you. Hopefully we'll have you back again next time please you write do, a piece please that jettisons someone's political career. <laughs> After the break, we'll answer your question about the Bank of England telling us to put up with being poorer And if you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So our question today is, do we have to accept being poorer? Now, I think this question is referring to the controversial comments by the Bank of England's chief economist, Hugh Pill, who said that there's a reluctance in the UK to accept that we'll have to be worse off as we tackle inflation and to stop trying to maintain our real spending power by asking for higher wages. This has obviously caused a lot of outrage. Personally, for me, what struck me is, It makes me wonder what's going on with the comms at the Bank of England Mm. because Pill made these points on a Columbia Law School podcast, which sounds a bit like a sort of rogue media 
appearance. And it comes off the back of the governor of the Bank of England telling people to stop asking for pay rises last year. And that's something I remember a source at the bank telling me at the time that their comms team had their head in their hands over this. There's just no way of saying these things without looking out of touch, especially because we know their salaries. So Andrew Bailey is earning half a million. Hugh Pill is paid over 190k a year. So One of the problems is that you have all these members of the Monetary Policy Committee, which set the bank rates, going out and speaking to the media in their individual, in an individual capacity. So they go and say, look, I'm here to basically commentate on the state of the economy and commentate on inflation. But it's not representative of the Bank of England, but they're still a member of the MPC. So the whole thing gets confused and you've you've got academics and economists going out and saying things which I think rightly they are on the MPC, get connected to the Bank of England in the end. Yeah, and it gives you a little bit of insight into the way that thinking goes in the Bank of England, even though, like you say, they're individual operators yeah. and not everyone on the MPC agrees with one another. You know, it does suggest to us that this institution that is in charge of what we pay in interest rates and also what we pay for food, inflation, basically thinks that we should be putting up with it and not being paid anymore. Yeah, because the basic argument here is that we need to keep prices down and wage down. Wages is the price of labour. Keep them both down, therefore we'll keep inflation down. Someone has to, in the end, accept that they're going to have less money, whether it's the businesses or workers, and that's the only way that we can solve inflation. That's the key reason that the bank is raising rates, in effect, is to increase the price of money, which in the end suppresses demand, which reduces the amount of people and money which are chasing goods, therefore the price comes down. So that's the theory of it. The problem is that Pill said someone needs to stop trying to maintain their real spending. Okay, so basically he's talking about the companies and the workers. Who yeah. should who should accept this trade-off? The problem with that argument is because it doesn't mention the fact that workers are already doing that. Yeah. Wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Therefore, you're getting a real terms wage cut. Yeah. If you look at all the wage deals that we're getting out of the strikes at the moment, very, very rarely are they above 10%, often they're way below, which in reality is just a lesser wage cut than they would have otherwise got. So we know lots of workers are already experiencing le having less money at the end of the month, whereas some companies are doing quite well. The P&G, the big goods company, the people that do very liquid and lots of household goods, they increased their profit margin last week. And that's basically them saying, okay, our prices are increasing more than our costs are. Yeah. So they're taking more money than they needed to to maintain their profit. So, so they're not taking a hit to their profits. Exactly, it's exactly. That. Whereas the OBR has said that they don't expect incomes to recover to 2019 levels until 2028. So there is a disparity there, which Hugh Pill's comments didn't take into account. Yeah, and what's really interesting detail in our business editor, Will Dunn's piece about this, is that the only people who are getting pay rises at the moment above inflation seem to be FTSE 100 CEOs. Yeah. So that's, that, that underlines your point about some businesses profiting from inflation to the extent of what is now being called greedflation, where they're sneaking in higher profits because consumers are expecting prices to go up. We'll go to the supermarket, we'll see the price of milk and we'll sigh, but we'll have to buy it. But that may be because some, some extra cost has been sneaked into that pint of milk that we're buying. So there's a lot of that going on, which it would be nice to hear some of these Bank of England figures comment on too, to be honest. Yeah. I wonder what the p political impact of this kind of thing can be. Do you think the general public sort of lump these figures in with politicians? Because the problem with, with politicians when they talk about these kind of things is that they also sound patronising if they ever try and give us either budgeting tips mm. or tips for 
uh, about getting paid more, etc. We've just seen so many gaffes. I won't list them all over <laughs> over the course of the cost of living crisis of politicians saying, oh, have you tried buying value brand and that yeah. kind of thing? And of course, we all know how much they're paid as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I think these individual comments don't necessarily lead to voters going, OK, I want a change in government because I connect the Bank of England with the government, even mm. though I know they've been independent since 1998 or whatever it is. I'm not sure that's the thought process that happens, but I definitely think it contributes to a general feeling that many people in government and elsewhere don't understand what's going on. But I do think the root of it is basically people's day-to-day experiences in the economy when they go to the shops, as you say, Anoush, when they get their pay packet, when their rent is increased, when the pint of milk is more expensive than it was. That's when they experience these things. So I find it, I think it's probably much more of an economic experience rather Mm. than them listening to a podcast and getting angry at a member of the MPC for not relating to them. Yeah. Like we are now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly like that. Yeah, and, and another risk, I suppose, is the government has cast themselves as some kind of body that can affect what happens with inflation. Rishi's, one of Rishi mm. Sunak's priorities is to get inflation halved. Obviously, we know that's not actually in the gift of the government. It is the Bank of England's job to do that, although the government can do things that help yeah. or help people get through it. Because ultimately, they've taken away their ability to then blame the Bank of England if interest rates keep going up by saying that they're, they're the ones who can have some kind of influence over this. So is there a difficulty there that they're linking themselves to the bank? A little bit. I think, however, Rishi Sunak is probably going to meet his inflation target because I think it's in the summer what we're going to see is the surge in gas prices drop out of the annual measure of inflation. That big increase we saw at the start of the Ukrainian war is going to fall out of the, the metrics, so therefore we're not going to see it. Therefore, even though core inflation is quite high, yeah. that, that fall in the energy prices is going to help Rishi Sunak achieve that goal. But it is interesting when you look at the relationship between the Conservative Party and the Bank of England over the years. We saw Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng be quite critical of the Bank of England during the leadership contest and then also when they were in government. And it is a balancing act. I think you mm. that you're a lot less likely to get criticism from someone like Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, who are much more in hoc with, if you want to call it, the, the Treasury orthodoxy or what have yeah. you, whatever it is. But they will accept, I think, the way that the economic framework in the UK is already set up and they'll accept that. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, my colleague Freddie Hayward and our contributing writer, Tomoa Owalade. We'll be back on Monday when we'll be discussing whether the government is failing children. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.